This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A bump in the road to confirmation for the next Army Secretary. The Senate confirmed Christine Wormuth unanimously Wednesday night, then reversed the nomination a few hours later. Wormuth served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the Obama administration. The new addition of the National Institute of Health's CIO Solutions and Partners contract is on the street. CIO SP4 has a $50 billion ceiling, including cybersecurity and software development. FCW reports NITAC wants proposals to its RFP, quote, on or about June 28th. The Defense Department unit that oversees cyber standards in the industrial base will start training assessors by the end of this summer. The new CEO of the CMMC accreditation body, Matt Travis, says the body's, quote, on the cusp of some exciting milestones. FedScoop reports the accreditation body has a new vice president for training and development, too, Melanie Kyle Gingrich. More than 25,000 Navy and Marine Corps personnel will take part in large-scale exercise 2021 this summer. The biggest naval exercise of this generation will test the services to prepare for possible conflict with China or Russia. Admiral Jamie Fogo, U.S. Navy, retired as a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's former commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and I, when you were still in uniform, talked about an exercise that you were involved with at the time called Exercise Trident Juncture. What did you learn from that that can apply to the sailors and Marines and, and other personnel that will participate in this huge event happening this summer? Francis, thank you very much for inviting me back on your show, Government Matters. Pleasure to be here today on this uh, sunny day in Washington, D.C. Uh, and yes, I had the pleasure of commanding uh, probably one of the largest exercises since the end of the Cold War, Exercise Trident Juncture in 2018. Rather cold up there north of the Arctic Circle in October, November of 18. So we learned how to fight in cold weather, but you have to train like you fight. It was uh, a huge exercise. 50,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines from 30 NATO nations and two partners, Sweden and uh, Finland. Uh, we had uh, 10,000 tracked and rolling vehicles that came off and on uh, 70 large ships, the Harry S. Truman Strike Group, Iwo Jima Expeditionary Strike Group with our Marines coming from the United States, as well as about 270 different aircraft from all different nations and all different type model series. Uh, logistics was key. We moved uh, seven brigades in 30 days. We learned a lot about that and rolled that back into future exercises, and I'm sure lessons learned in the large scale exercise. We established about 60 bases, did 360 airlifts, moved uh, 60 container ships, about 2,200 containers. Over the course of the exercise, a month, a million meals served, and uh, 35,000 beds established for troops when uh, they got a little bit of time to sleep. So an enormous undertaking. And I, I think that the United States Navy and Marine Corps are now leading the way in a combination of, you know, Trident Juncture was live. It was a live X, real hardware, real people. We're now uh, doing a hybrid version of that, 
with both live and virtual, the live virtual concept. This is the wave of the future. It's going to be how we train future generations of warriors using gaming and simulation to augment uh, the actual hardware and people that are at sea. So I'm really proud of the Navy for that. One of the things you pointed out to me off the air that, uh, that uh, appears to be important about this, this exercise that's coming this summer is a United States Navy and Marine Corps exercise. The exercise you just talked about included all the partners that you, and, and uh, allies that you referenced. What's the difference in the way that uh, the Navy and Marine Corps will prepare for this, do you think, Jamie? Well, we've been preparing for it for a long time, Francis, and I think the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, want to execute this exercise and take the lessons learned, and eventually we'll get into the interoperability with our allies and partners. As you know, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin spoke at Admiral Davidson's change of command ceremony at Indo-PACOM, and uh, he launched the initiative of uh, integrated defense. So, you know, we've got the British carrier going to the Western Pacific with an American ship. We had the French carrier uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, covering down for us. And we had the Italian carrier here in Norfolk doing F-35 integration training. That's the wave of the future. But for right now, the Navy is experimenting with networks and live virtual training to uh, to be a force multiplier for how we train our warriors. We're gonna have 25,000 personnel involved in this. It is both live and virtual. So they're uh, currently planning for about 36 or three dozen ships at sea, or as the Navy refers to them, units, so small and large, and 50 more units. And that could be crews or teams that will be training in our maritime operations centers around the globe. This goes, this exercise will be across 17 time zones. That is amazing. And it will integrate Europe and Africa with uh, the command center, the Maritime Operations Center in Norfolk at Fleet Forces Command and out at uh, PAC Fleet Command in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Uh, I was planning this when I was on active duty with Admiral Grady in Norfolk and uh, Admiral Aquilina, who's now the PACOM commander, but it was delayed about a year because of COVID. I re regret the, uh, the chance that I didn't have the opportunity to participate because I think this is gonna be something really special and there's going to be some tremendous lessons learned and value added out of it. One of the lessons learned you compared before we went on the air to one of your favorite books. What's that comparison, Admiral? Yeah, thanks, uh, Francis. So this is, uh, uh, first of all, this is live and virtual, so about 50-50. It's gonna save money. I mean, you have to invest in the live virtual concept for gaming and simulation in the network, but ultimately we're not burning fossil fuels for you know, over half of the ships or teams in this exercise. There's no wear and tear on that hardware. And you know, readiness and modernization in our industrial base are very busy keeping our ships at sea right now. So we're not gonna put that extra wear and tear on the hardware or the software. That's the people, the sailors who, they're gonna work hard during this exercise and they're gonna have long hours, but they will be in their home ports uh, during the time that we're conducting this. Now on the, uh, on the book. Uh, so one of my favorite books is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Uh, it was made into a great movie. And it's a story or story about uh, a threat uh, against the world, uh, you know, the potential annihilation of our way of life. And the main character is Andrew Ender Wiggins, hence the name Ender's Games. He's a cadet. He's kind of a loner. He's very aggressive. And the admirals and generals of the International Fleet recognize his tactical genius so they cultivate him to be a warrior and he becomes one the way they train him is to put him into difficult almost impossible gaming and simulation exercises he gets really really good 
Then they give them a final exam. They take him into the room. And because for Ender, it's a game, he takes additional risk. He puts people in harm's way. And he absolutely obliterates and annihilates the enemy. At the end of the game, the admirals and generals pull back the black screen to reveal that this was real. Ender has just fought and ended the war for us. Now, what live virtual gives you is, you know, is that life imitating art or art imitating life? Uh, a little of both. Live virtual gives you the opportunity to take some risk. And if it doesn't work out, then reset and repeat. Adjust your doctrine, adjust your training, adjust your tactics and your strategy and do it again and do it again and do it again, just like Ender, until you become so good that, uh, first of all, the adversaries, who will all be watching this large-scale exercise, will not want to go into conflict with us. That's deterrence. Admiral Fogo, thanks very much for joining me. Always great to have you here. Great to be here, Francis. Thank you so much. See you next time. Coming next, executing on executive orders. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who does what on the EO on climate? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. A new executive order on climate change risks includes action items for federal agencies. It spells out deadlines for those agencies, too. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, welcome. It's great to see you again. What's your takeaway from this executive order, both policy-wise, but more importantly, what agencies will have to do to comply with it? Well, Francis, I think this is a really important to EO, but initially it's about analysis and signaling. It creates some requirements for reports about 120 days out and 180 days out, where we're going to get a feel for how the, uh, the federal government is going to approach these kinds of regulations and how it's going to value the risk, the financial risk of climate change. And that's going to affect all kinds of agencies, those who have federal loan programs, uh, those who uh, regulate the financial markets, those who look at commodities markets, all those kinds of things. So it basically says we've been undervaluing the potential risks that are posed by climate change. And so we've been undervaluing the rewards for investing in climate mitigation strategies. So it's going to try to nudge the market to make those kinds of investments more valuable and more enticing. You used a couple of phrases there that I think are interesting. And, and one is that uh, all kinds of federal agencies will be involved with this. That means, to me at least, my takeaway was there'll be a lot of agencies that haven't really thought about climate risks before that will have to start doing so and building the infrastructure or relying on the infrastructure of other agencies to get information. The other thing that jumped out at me, Terry, the way that you just described it, is this is a risk management question. This is a risk management challenge for agencies, isn't it? That's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the statistics about how much climate-related disasters have cost the federal government over the past few years, it's um, remarkable, billions and billions and billions of dollars. So every program that's exposed to this kind of climate risk is going to have to evaluate their programs and value that risk. The first thing that's got to happen to, before that, though, is that the regulatory agencies and OMB are going to have to figure out how actually to quantify that risk and price it. And so it could be everything, as I said, from home loans 
to supply chain risk um, in manufacturing, uh, to actual investment risk in pension plans. Um, and a lot of agencies haven't thought about that at all. When you use those terms quantifying and pricing risk, I hear one word, and that's data. The data flow here from agency to agency is going to be critical, isn't it? It absolutely is, and that's why Treasury and Secretary Yellen are really at the heart of this conversation, because they uh, they oversee all of the financial regulatory bodies that in the markets are used to doing this, but they're going to have to figure out, and I th think that's why that first 120-day plan that the White House is going to pull together is going to be so important, because it's going to set the stage for agencies on how they're going to count right, and value that risk. And then OMB is going to have to put that into the financial management regulations and accounting standards so that agencies are all playing by the same rules so that the market has a consistent set of data to look at. I'm going to give you a big pay raise. I'm going to make you a big high-priced consultant, Terry. You're going to go in and sit with a leader at an agency who's going, what do we need to do next in order to manage this data flow, in order to build these organizations or improve organizations that we have to comply with this? What do you tell that person, that, what do you tell that team that's trying to move forward on this? Well, I think the first place to start, the first question is, do you have a lending program or do you have a grant making program that's been impacted by climate, uh, climate costs over the past several years? Start there, put your finger on the programs that you know are impacted. Um, it could be FEMA and disaster relief. It could be um, the, the, uh, the, the, the inventories around um, uh, COVID response, right? The, the pandemic response. Where have you been impacted by climate change? And start there and ask those questions. How do I count it? What's the price of it? How do I value it? So that OMB and the White House can start to pull together the common set of questions. And then they will have to create the data that's shared um, collectively so that we've got a common picture across the government. It strikes because me. Then, of course, I, I'm sorry. The no, next no I apologize, Terry, but it just strikes me as, as I'm listening to you lay those programs out, there are going to be implications, climate implications in programs that people never thought about before, I imagine. This is going to be have to be such a comprehensive analysis, I would imagine, of programs all across agencies that I wonder if the 120, 180 day reporting periods are going to be doable, first of all, and if they're doable, then if they can be comprehensive in that period of time. Well, I view the 120 and the 180 day reports as the beginning. It's the beginning of the beginning. It sets the stage. It signals that we're, we're intentionally looking at this and it begins to address common questions. Um, those are timed to come just before a major UN uh, meeting on climate change. And so I think we'll see coming out of that meeting do those reports do enough? Do they set enough of the stage? Do they provoke enough of the conversation that the follow-on work over the next year, when OMB will have to figure out how to reflect all of these in the next budget, um, if we've done enough to lay the stage for that? So these are just the beginning of the beginning. There's a lot more work to be done. Terry Gurton, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Francis, thank you. Up next, cyber deadlines approach all across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the White House is watching what agencies do next. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
The Technology Modernization Fund Board will receive fewer than 100 pretty robust project proposals by June 2nd. That's the term federal CIO Claire Martirana used. The TMF will focus on cybersecurity proposals after some high-profile cyber hacks at agencies. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting, former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. The devil now is in the details, isn't it, Richard? We have a bunch of money. We have the pro the, these robust uh, proposals coming in that Claire says uh, should start to, to be coming in. What's next for agencies? They got to get the proposals in, I suppose. And then once they get the money, they got to execute, right? Yeah, that, absolutely, Francis. And I, I'm, I must say, I'm very pleased with the way things are gone to date with this. Obviously, the money, the, the billion dollars proposals are due, I believe, June 2nd. And uh, I really like the selection criteria that they, they outlined. And in particular, I like a couple of things they talk about. Um, the fact that it, it needs to support the mission and be very, very clear what the outcomes will be from the project and or if it's like cyber security related, exactly what it's going to do for the agency. I also like the fact that it, it needs to align with the IT modernization strategy for the organization, for the agency. But most important, what I really like is the fact that they're talking about, they call it feasibility. I like to call it ability to execute. This notion that these projects, you need to have the right project team. You need to have the right methodologies in place. You need to have the right governance structure. Because the last thing we want to see is a lot of money is sent out to agencies on these projects. And then a year or two years later, the IG reports come out and, and talk about all the failures. We do, we do not want to see that for the federal IT community. When I read between the lines of this, Richard, I read a phrase that's not expressed, but I think it's implied. And that is feel free to think big. You think I'm reading that right? I think you are, and I'll go back to something that the, the, you know, the new federal CIO said, Claire, about she used this term I like, holistic modernization. You know, you and I have talked in the past on this show about I, I'm, I'm always concerned about agencies doing stovepipe modernization, where they, they are just very narrow and small projects. But if you really start thinking about holistically, how do you modernize a whole agency, starting with the mission, starting with what you need to deliver, but then that has to go into the IT systems and, and modernizing these IT systems. So I think they're headed in the right way, but I always come back to that issue of ability to execute. And you know, be careful about getting too much money all at one time. It, it can be actually a, a negative. Who's, if you're not ready to, with the projects and, and with the uh, talent to be able to execute well. Where's the right place for the oversight to keep that execution on track? Is it within the agencies? Is it, it, should it be in Claire's office for that holistic modernization concept? Where should that live, Richard? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, uh, it, it's just too hard for the, to do this all out of OMB. You, you gotta have it at the agency level. That doesn't, now, OMB has got an oversight responsibility. They need to make sure the right governance is taking place. And by governance, I'm talking about having the right executives on both the business and mission side, together with the IT side, you know, at the table, working this together, making sure these projects are doing the right things. Being able to say time out, if we don't have the right talent on board yet, let's not start something that we're not ready to start. These are hard things to do, but very, very important if you're gonna run, particularly if you're gonna run larger scale IT projects and programs. So then turbocharging the collaboration on the CIO Council might be the right location for that. I'm just worried that we get, everybody gets their money 
and as which is great and then they go off and, and work on their projects and they go right back into those those silos that you talked about Richard I, yeah. I just wonder well, where the structure lives to make sure that people don't do that again yeah I, I think that's gonna that that push is gonna have to I think start with OMB because you know that's they're going to have to make sure that the agencies are doing this the right way I like the fact that they've engaged with the federal CIO council around this holistic modernization planning initiative. They're gonna have a working group. I think that's a very positive thing, but I would like to see OMB really step up. Maybe they can leverage some GSA resources as well as this. You know, you know we, had, we had that Techstat program back when I was at, at DHS coming out of OMB. I think that was helpful. I think we're gonna need that kind of oversight at that level but that's only gonna focus on a small percentage of projects. It can't focus on all these projects that are ongoing. We're really gonna to need to beef up, if you will, that oversight within the agencies. We have about a minute left, Richard. What will you watch as the money goes out and we start to see motion on the projects? Yeah, well, I should say, I expect there's gonna be a lot of transparency around these projects, which ones have been approved, and I suspect there's gonna be good transparency about how they're being executed. Obviously, going back to my theme, on, on a good execution. I don't want to really want to see some successes here. So let's, uh, let's get some things that we can get some early successes on. But, but to your point, you got to go big and going big means replacing some of these large legacy systems. That's going to take years and years to do. So we need, we need a combination of both. But the other thing they're really stressing, which is obviously correct these days, is the use of agile methodologies, use of incremental delivery. You know, let's not try to boil the ocean with you know a, a multi-year project where you don't see anything until the end. We've got to really see some progress along the way, or you need to call timeout, revisit how you're doing things, get the right team in place to then to, to then execute. Richard Spires, thanks very much as always. Great to have you. Thank you, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time 
about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.